This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The Holy Spirit has sometimes been called the forgotten person of the Trinity, yet he appears at the very beginning of the biblical story. Genesis 1 verse 2 says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit was present and sovereignly active in the origins of life as we know it and he still is. This is season 7 of Office Hours and our theme is the Holy Spirit, Lord and Giver of Life. Brian Estelle is with us today. He's professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, and he teaches our course, Biblical Theology and Canon, and he has taught our course on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. He's author of Salvation Through Judgment and Mercy, The Gospel According to Jonah, and co-editor and contributor to The Law is Not of Faith. These and other faculty titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Brian, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Good to be with you. Genesis 1-2 says, in part, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Moses, right at the very outset, assumes that we know what he means when he says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What does this pregnant expression mean? And then we'll get to some others, such as Genesis 6-3. Yes, uh, often neglected, what it means is that the Spirit was there at the beginning of the creation, and he was hovering over the chaotic waters as God began to bring form out of formlessness. Why that's important theologically is we see that the Spirit was actually there as a kind of divine protectorate, if you will. In other words, Adam and Eve were protected by virtue of God's presence there, where God's Spirit is, there is God's presence. And this is important then as we think more largely about the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of the fall, because it, among other things, makes Adam and Eve's sin that much more high-handed. Here is God providing everything they needed, and yet they were willing to transgress his law and go against what he had set out for them, even though they were capable of not sinning. And of course, they were capable of sinning as well. They chose to sin despite the Spirit's presence and hovering over the garden. Now, this is also important because it, in rugby terms, provides a kind of knock-on that is a trajectory for what comes later in Scripture because we see the same words, the same collection of words or group of words used later in Deuteronomy 32, verse 11, where the imagery is of God hovering like an eagle over his people and Of course, that is a common image throughout the Old Testament for God's protection, that he provides his wing-like protection covering his people. But also, more significantly, is it shows that where God's Spirit hovers in this way, and these are the only two places in the Pentateuch where you get this collection of words, is the fact that what God is doing when he singles out his particular people of God as the apple of his eye, 
namely Israel. He is involved in an act of recreation, if you will. And so there's a very important correlation between what God is doing in the Garden of Eden and what he's doing in the New Eden, so to speak. That is the place to which he's leading his people, namely Israel, the land of Canaan. Back in creation, Scripture just opens up with God and assumes that we know what Moses means. And of course, when this revelation was given, when God gives this to the national people, there is already many, many years of experience and awareness and understanding. And yet this phrase, the Spirit of God, just appears without explanation. It's almost assumed that we know that there is God and the Spirit of God. Is it fair for us to see a personal distinction and to see that Scripture already wants us to understand that these are two, to put it in traditional theological terms, consubstantial divine persons? Oh, I think that was the case for the Israelites later in Scripture. Just to bring out a real obvious example, you have David crying out, pleading with God on the heels of his high-handed sin, both with Bathsheba committing adultery and then also even more egregiously killing her husband, namely Uriah the Hittite. And then Psalm 51, which has traditionally, I think, appropriately been assigned to David's repentance in the wake of Nathan prophesying to him that he is the man who committed these high-handed sins. And then he's finally brought to a place of real life repentance, and he cries out, O Lord, take not thy spirit from me. So obviously there was a conception of God, the Holy Spirit, that was indwelling and filling him, and that he had grievously injured by his high-handed sin. How important is it that Moses, at the very beginning, associates the Holy Spirit with creation and the giving of life? I think it's really important. It's important for a number of reasons. One thinks of there at creation, of course, you had the beginning of life, culminating on day six with the creation of Adam and Eve in the image of God. And that's really significant, right? In other words, the Holy Spirit is present, and we have to view the creation of humanity in light of his creative activity. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And of course, one's mind somewhat easily rushes forward to the New Testament, doesn't it? Where we think of Jesus, and of course, although it's highly mysterious, the incarnation and the virgin birth, nevertheless, the scriptures do attest to the Spirit coming upon Mary. And so already there's the idea of life being communicated there as well, with a kind of very careful propriety, but nevertheless, the texts clearly teach that. And 1 Peter 4, too, right? The Holy Spirit hovering over the people of God as he is making them into the new covenant sort of temple of Christ. That's exactly right. And so it's interesting to look at the unfolding motif of the Spirit, not just to relegate the person of the Godhead to a literary motif, but nevertheless as a pattern and a theme throughout scriptures. It's interesting to look at the organic development And then look at that organic development in light of other themes. So, for example, the wilderness theme. Often the wilderness theme is, in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch especially, a place of discipline, a place of hardship. But it's also the place of in-betweenness. In other words, the Spirit is there guiding with the standing pillar 
either fire by night, uh, cloud by day, to not just Mount Sinai, but ultimately through the wilderness from Mount Sinai to the land of Canaan. And uh, that's a really significant thing because it's maybe obliquely, but nevertheless truly set up with God's creation of a people who will be turfed in his land and will reside with them in a special intensified kind of presence way, if you will, especially in the wilderness when they build a tabernacle and the Spirit descends on the tabernacle in chapter 40 at the end as the climax of Exodus, but then also then adumbrating or hinting at, if you will, the temple where uh, the Holy Spirit descends upon the temple and the glory fills the temple too. And so these ideas of wilderness and spirit and creation of life are intimately related as well. And if I can say one more thing, only a little, because you have to tune in for the conference if you want to hear the full spiel, either come or live stream. But what we see is a change in redemptive history when we get to the New Testament, because no longer is the wilderness a place that resonates with fear and judgment and danger. I mean, this in-between with regards to the wilderness is a place of danger, but it's also a liminal space. What I mean by that is they're coming from one place of identity and location, and they're emerging into another one in order to have a new identity. And so what we see in the New Testament is the blending of the Spirit, so to speak, the intersection, more precisely, of the Spirit with this wilderness theme in order to prepare us for a new Moses who is coming to give away a little bit. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. When we think in modern American evangelical terms of the Holy Spirit, we think of oftentimes extraordinary things and alleged ostensible latter-day outpourings of the Holy Spirit, renewals of Pentecost and so forth that we've discussed in other episodes. But it seems to me it's very significant that the first thing that Scripture says about the Holy Spirit is that he's hovering over the face of the deep, over the waters and that he's associated with the giving of life. So that when we think about the work of the Holy Spirit, we should think principally not of the sort of phenomena about which we often end up talking because of our sort of American revivalist context, but about his sort of mysterious, powerful work in the creation of life originally and in the giving of new life to people who are spiritually dead. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Scott. And perhaps if this side of the teaching on the Holy Spirit and his action in history, his involvement with his people were more responsibly given on a regular basis to people, perhaps the accent would be on the right syllable, so to speak, and we would be mesmerized by those grand truths that you're speaking of instead of inappropriately focusing on those incidental, if you will, times in redemptive history where we do see the practice of extraordinary gifts and signs and wonders and that kind of thing, and not to reduce or marginalize the importance of those events in world history and redemptive history. They're extremely important, but those are the exception to the rule, aren't they? And a lot of what is happening at Pentecost, and we can come back to this perhaps, is the giving of new life. Here, the Holy Spirit is, as it were, 
being poured out in a new way in fulfillment of the promise that God gave through Jeremiah. This is the inauguration, in a sense, the formal inauguration of the new covenant, that it really is true. The Holy Spirit really has been poured out on the church, and he really is creating new life in the midst of his people. Yeah, and in a grander way, right? In a more profusive way, in a more... uh... Tablets of flesh replace tablets of stone, so that the real story isn't Moses. I realize I'm talking to an Old Testament professor here. But you're also a Christian pastor, a minister, too. So you see the whole story. You know, sometimes it's tempting to focus on the tablets. Really significant story of Israel and the glory cloud and the pillar of fire. But all of that really is pointing forward to a more fundamental reality, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. So some of the older systematic theologians will talk about a greater effulgence of the Spirit there at Pentecost, greater outpouring. But isn't that wonderful that now it's not relegated, restricted to a particular people, minimal in the world scene, but rather there's this great uh, democratization of the Spirit now, this outpouring at Pentecost upon many, many peoples, and not just the Jews, but also people outside the ethnic Jews, so that we see what Joel promised coming to fruition, namely the outpouring of the Spirit upon many, regardless of race and regardless of the color of their skin. And uh, that's surely more magnificent in the sense of the greater effulgence, the greater democratization universality, right? The, the universality. Gentiles are being brought in and they're hearing the gospel in their own language. It's being preached by the power of the Holy Spirit in their own language. Exactly. And this was the great prophetic hope. I realize we're talking about the Holy Spirit and the Pentateuch primarily, but this was the great prophetic hope. And they're seeing the dawn of the ages of what the prophets, especially Isaiah 40 through 66, had prophesied about, that this will have far-reaching ramifications beyond the borders of Israel, beyond the borders of what we know were the true exiled people into Babylon or Assyria. This will stretch the uttermost into the earth. And now those who have gone before us and especially in the first century AD, they're seeing the realization of all those prophetic hopes, at least as they were meant to be unfolded and developed at that time. And of course, they stretch into the age to come too, with the second coming of Christ, when we'll see the great climax of the Spirit's work and bringing the whole host of believers to himself by his enabling power. One of the challenges that we have in interpreting the Pentateuch, particularly the first five books of the Old Testament, and is discerning the person of the Holy Spirit in various places. And there are some challenges in deciding, is this a reference to a distinct person of the Trinity, or is this some other way of speaking of God's Spirit? And perhaps one of those is Genesis 6-3, where it says, Then Yahweh said, My Spirit, and in the ESV it's capitalized, shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh he being man, I take it, his days shall be 120 years. So what do you make of that sort of language? And give us a guide. How do we go at this, particularly if the reader is not reading Hebrew? It's a difficult verse, and exegetes struggle over it. It's interesting. I can remember even before becoming a Christian and sitting in a Sunday school class and hearing a seminary professor who was visiting that Sunday school class talk about this very verse, and especially about God grieving over the direction of his people in the immediate context. So the Spirit also, we know, through common grace, restrains people. No person is as wicked the side of the fall as they could be, even though they're totally depraved, thanks be to God. 
God. So one of the operations of the Spirit is to restrain people from being as wicked as they potentially could, given their depraved nature. But here also we see immediately before judgment, what was happening in the immediate context here is sin was growing and waxing so strong that the enemies of God potentially were going to wipe out the people of God. And of course, we couldn't have that because God had promised that he would deliver the Messiah through his seed, through his people. And so whenever sin waxes that strong to potentially threaten the people of God, those whom God had designed to bring the Messiah through them, through the womb of that people, then God must visit the world with judgment in order to stop and silence the growth of sin, so to speak, or at least bring about order to the degree that redemptive history can march on upon the soil of common grace. And so here, I think in part at least, what we have is retraction of God's presence because he's going to judge the world. In um, Exodus 31, there's an interesting episode that might help also the listener get a firmer grasp on how to make these sorts of interpretive decisions, beginning in verse 1, where it says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. And again, in the ESV, Spirit is capitalized, indicating a divine person of the Trinity, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, etc. Again, give us a sense how, when you look at that language, when you run across that, how do you think about that? Well, I think maybe as a starting point, it's helpful to go back and to your earlier comments and say, well, Look, the Spirit doesn't just do extraordinary kinds of things as certain churches are inclined to lean upon. Although this was extraordinary, notice the list here. The list is in many ways very practical. Bezalel and Aholiab are given gifts in order to build, decorate, design, carry out, and implement the architecture of the tabernacle, which, as a copy— was given from heaven above. So this is very significant because the tabernacle on earth is a model of the heavenly temple above, the true archetypal temple. So men must be gifted for that, and the Spirit plays this function here in order to have them do goldsmithing, in order to have them probably pound some kind of nails (laughs) and uh, woodwork to put the amazing large animal skins on the tabernacle that surely were there and all the inset colors that we know about. There's a lot we don't know about the tabernacle. There's a fair amount that we do is laid out there. But notice also the end game. What's the end game? The end game is that the tabernacle may be finished and then God's spirit, God's presence, his holiness may dwell there and come down upon the tabernacle and meet with his designated representative. Representative, exactly. Especially Moses, okay? So, and we see that at the climax of the book of Exodus in chapter 40. That's exactly what happens. So they're given gifts towards a specific end goal, namely to create, build up, artistically decorate, and beautify the place where God's presence will intensely be represented. What does God's Word teach about the person and work of the Holy Spirit? Did He first appear at Pentecost? Who is He and what is He doing now? 
In 381, the church confessed that God the Spirit is Lord and giver of life, who is properly worshiped and glorified, who inspired God's inerrant word. Join the faculty for our annual conference, January 15 and 16, 2016. The Holy Spirit, Lord and giver of life, featuring W. Robert Godfrey, Mike Horton, and others as we consider the person and work of the Spirit in our salvation and the Christian life. For more information, go to wscal.edu slash conference2016 or call 888-480-8474. That's Friday and Saturday, January 15 and 16 on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California. wscal.edu slash conference2016, 888-480-8474. Do you think of these as temporary endowments of the Spirit to particular people for particular purposes, or how do you go at that? I think that's the case here. So, for example, I can remember sitting in a school meeting at one time, society meeting of a school, where there was an argument being made that just as Bezalel and Holiab were called to use their hands, gifted by the Spirit, to do these various things for service of God. So to the argument ran, we need to have a wood shop, uh, you know. And we uh, don't really expect our students or our wood shop teachers to be endowed with the Spirit in the same way. That's right. And so... Unless they're building the Holy of Holies and we've gone backwards in the history of redemption. Right. So I guess I'm answering by the antidote to say no, uh, no and yes. No, these are not gifts that are used all the time for different people. And yes, these were a special endowment of the Spirit serving special ends for a special time in redemptive history when God had designated to have the tabernacle as the place of his intense and focused dwelling. Early on, you mentioned Psalm 51. David says, take not your spirit from me. Obviously, that raises certain difficulties. From a theological point of view, it seems to suggest that the Holy Spirit can be given and can be taken away. I've had Christians come to me and say, Pastor, this is something I should be worried about. So, Pastor Brian, help us with this. What do we do with David's language, and how do we relate that to Christians now in the New Covenant? Yeah, that's a great question, especially in light of a previous question and comments we were just touching on, Scott. Although there are distinct periods and special endowments of the Spirit for particular purposes in unique times in redemptive history, nevertheless, on the other side of the ledger, we always want to maintain that there is one covenant of grace, and people are saved in the same way in the Old Testament dispensation, if you will, as well as in the New. So, in other words, a regenerate, saved person believing in the Messiah to come, truly trusting in the promises of the God for the Messiah to come, was saved by believing in that Messiah to come and was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And I think that's why we hear David testifying the way he does. Now, we believe in a Messiah who has come, but nevertheless, Old Testament saints could be filled with the Spirit just like New Testament saints and were indeed. David, I think, is struggling with the problem of assurance. And so we know, for example, from the Westminster Confession of faith on the chapter of assurance, uh, one of the things that can exacerbate a feeling of being distanced from God or separated from God is ongoing unrepentant sin. And so here's David, dolt that he was, And remember, we can't pick on David too harshly, but for the grace of God, all of us would be adulterers and murderers and commit the most egregious sins as well. 
But here he's been living in his sin and rationalizing him to himself so much so that Nathan has to come and uh, tell a story, a parable, to shake him out of his doldrums so he might see that he is the man. And then finally he gets it. And so he's grieved the Holy Spirit. He's injured that relationship with God. But now God is taking him through the right process in order to have what we call a live repentance, a real repentance, a repentance unto life, not a half hearted repentance. So I just heard a wonderful sermon on Sunday from my pastor, Zach Hill, on Psalm 51, because we're in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and so he paused to preach on that, and it was really great. It was great talking to one of our new members afterwards who has a way of stating these little sound bites. He said, you know, Brian, we always want a piece of the action, but David was reduced to ashes. There was nothing he could do. The law had clubbed him over the head. All he could do was turn to God and be dependent upon him. And that's true. All of us as human beings want a piece of the action, but that's the great glories of Orthodox Protestantism is we don't get a piece of the action. It's all God's action doing what we failed to do. So the Spirit remains with us. And when David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me or take not your spirit from me, we understand that to mean that he's speaking sort of existentially, experientially, don't depart from me, don't take your presence from me. Is that, I think is that's that what I'm a, hearing? I think that's exactly right. So as we need to understand the communicative intent of all language in Scripture— just like language in our everyday relationships, we have to parse that language correctly according to how people communicate. And the communicative intent here is it resides in his posture stance at the time, which has been injured by continual sin, recalcitrant sin, in other words, unrepentant sin, but now he's had his eyes open. He wouldn't pray this if it were not for the Spirit within them. And that's probably a very important point for our readers to realize, because in our churches where people are receiving good sound doctrine and teaching, a lot of people with very sensitive consciences do indeed struggle with assurance and wonder when they have sinned, especially if they've fallen into egregious and deep sin, whether God is still present. And the fact of the matter is, if they are truly in union with Christ, if they are truly a believer, then God's Spirit is there. And part of the reason they're feeling that grief is because they know they've injured the relationship. If I get in an argument with my daughter or my son or my wife, we feel on a human level that kind of estrangement. We want to make reconciliation. We want to do something to put things right, hopefully. And uh, how much more so, if that's the case on the human level, how much more so on the divine level where we've grieved our Heavenly Father and we want to put things right. So that's how I understand what David is saying. That's his posture. That's his He's speaking out of pain, the pain of knowing that he's sinned against God and God alone. A couple of other questions that are related to this, and then I want to come back to something with which we started in the beginning, and that's creation. First, how did the Holy Spirit function among the prophets in the Old Testament. For example, I'm looking at Numbers 11, 26 through 29, mentions Eldad and Medad, and it says, the Spirit, and again it's capitalized in the ESV, rested on them, and they were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. And then there are other examples. We could look at Numbers 27, 16 through 20. Again, help us understand the function of the Holy Spirit and the nature of his work in those Old Testament prophets. That's a huge question, but to treat it— uh, <laughs> And you've got two minutes. <laughs> to treat it briefly, 
because this is an area that's often sadly neglected, people talk about Old Testament prophecy as merely being foretelling or something to that effect. But the fact of the matter is to be an official prophet, to hold the office of prophet in the Old Testament. Now, there were people who exercised the gift of prophecy without holding the office. But of course, if you held the office, then you had the gift of prophecy. And then three criteria for that were that you, first of all, were elected to God for that office. And then secondly, that you were caught up into the divine council, that is divine courtroom, and you're made privy to God's wishes. The divine courtroom being that's where the august God sits in his holiness with his retinue of uh, angels, unfallen angels around about him just waiting to do his bidding. And then lastly, that you be anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's helpful pedagogically to pull the second and third point apart, even though ultimately you can't pull those apart. And uh, that may seem like a strange idea to a lot of listeners, but when you begin to look at Scripture and see that that's the case over and over and over again in the pattern of history, that's what empowers them to become the mouth of God, to become the Word of God, to become the messenger of God. And all these words are used almost synonymously at times in various passages. And you can look at, the reader may look at Jeremiah 23 at their leisure, which is a nice contrastive section teaching the same thing, because basically their God is inveighing against those prophets who, through an act of self-aggrandizement, took it to themselves to prophesy without being in his holy council, which is where he resides. So one needs to be anointed by the Spirit, and the usual formula is God puts his word in the prophet's mouth, and then the prophet becomes a spokesman for God, speaking God's word to whom whomever the addressees are intended to be to hear God's Word. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is operating in that and through that. Absolutely. In fact, there's a passage in Hosea where you have a nice little poetic couplet. And one side of the couplet, the prophet is called a prophet, a navi is the Hebrew word. And the other, he's called the man of the spirit. So you see that nice kind of parallelism bringing out the man who is the prophet is also a man of or belonging to the spirit, taken hold of by the spirit. And so we see that there. Now, isn't it interesting when we jump up to the New Testament that we see the uh, Holy Spirit come on Jesus at his baptism? In the transfiguration, we see Moses and Elijah, two key prophets. Moses is the paradigm prophet of the Old Testament. And then we get back to Pentecost. The disciples have put all these things together, some of them having watched all that, and they see that Jesus is the quintessential, the final prophet. He's the fulfillment of the whole warp and move for the Old Testament. And then the writer to Hebrews says, yes, just as Moses was a doulas, a servant over his house, namely the theocracy, so he's the paradigm prophet of the Old Testament. Then in contrast, Jesus is not a doulas, a servant, but rather a huios, a son over his house, which is the new covenant order. And so Jesus is fulfilling what Moses was meant to point forward to. And as it turns out, according to Hebrews, if I understand it correctly, Moses works for Jesus. Moses is the servant. Jesus is the son. He's the heir. He's the owner. And theologically, we want to say the Holy Spirit 
who empowered Moses and all the prophets to do what they did, to speak what they spoke, is the Holy Spirit who is mediated to them through the Son. That's exactly right. And if we had time, we don't, but if we had time, we could go back to creation and even see the importance of how all of this prophetic function is wrapped up or at least related to the Imago Dei, the image of God creation at the beginning, in which man is created in the image of God. And there's a fascinating kind of correlation with what's going on in the prophets as an extension of that Imago Dei. Well, that's where I wanted to go, actually, to conclude here, is to go back to creation. We've spent a lot of time in the modern period talking about various aspects of creation. There's been a lot of debate about the length of the creation days and how we ought to think about that, how we ought to relate that to various discussions in modern science since the early to mid-19th century. But it seems to me that perhaps we've missed some important aspects of this narrative. We discussed a variety of topics, but we really haven't discussed the role of the spirit in creation very much. And so I wanted you to give us some closing thoughts as to why do you think that might be the case? Um, That's a great question. I'm not sure I have some thoughts about that as I've been assigned to work and striving to bring peace to the church that was potentially dividing over creation issues and that kind of thing. You've been on General Assembly committees to work on this sort of thing as well. Right, right. And it is fascinating to say, why all the tumult? Why all the kerfuffle over side issues, if you will, perhaps even issues that the scriptures were not intended to speak to? And of course, the ultimate answer is, you know, our adversary, the devil, would love nothing more than have us all backbiting one another without giving giving attention to what his word is really trying to teach. I think another quick answer is that we've, at times, in America at least, been so caught up in the culture wars, we've circled the wagons and put the accent on the wrong syllable, thinking if we protect this one little area, like the length of days of creation or whatever, then, you know, we'll be safe against intrusions in other areas. Which hasn't really worked, has it? I mean, just, just reading the news this morning and looking at the various things that are going on, maybe it's time to rethink our strategy. Yeah. I often use the illustration that uh, in talking with people that are wrapped around the axle on those issues we just alluded to, that Normandy is being landed upon. We're fighting skirmishes out in the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska or something. <laughs> uh, so not to in any way disrespect the actual war that went on there during World War II. Uh, we were actually invaded there and, and there were soldiers that lost their life. Or even the importance of the questions. I mean, we're not suggesting that discussing the days is irrelevant or the interpretation of Scripture on those questions is irrelevant, and good people are going to come to different conclusions. But it is amazing that here Scripture begins with God revealed as, in its own terms, God and the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God, operating in creation and the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. What a marvelous image that sort of sets a pattern for thinking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't really seem to influence us very much as we think about the interpretation of Genesis 1 and the significance of all of that. Well, and here's perhaps a good note to close on and think about. What's really sad about that is that we are basically locking a door or closing a door that we should be opening that then when we step through it or we look through it, introduces us to the wonderful, beautiful, phenomenal, structured organization of the scriptures to see how God 
in each of his three persons, equal in power and glory, yet in their own, as theologians talk about, their own economical function and roles in the world, how that plays out. And if we're neglecting these fundamental areas that are introduced to us in very veiled terms, granted, at the beginning of Genesis, nevertheless, perhaps then we'll develop a kind of myopia where we won't see the wonderful kaleidoscope of images that are there later on. So that includes the very important work of the Holy Spirit, guiding his people, leading his people through the wilderness, this period of danger in betweenness to ultimate peace in the land. And of course, we know it wasn't peace in the land ultimately, because that peace in the land was never meant to be the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal was that God would enable, make willing, by the effectual call of his spirit, a people crafted as his own, turfed, not on earth, but rather in heaven, worshiping the Lamb of God, who secured their redemption forever and ever, singing his praises, and ultimately on the other side of the chaotic sea waters, because the sea will be no more, according to Revelation 21, because Christ's work will be all in all, and the Spirit's work will have been fully accomplished in bringing in all those that he indeed sets out to call and make his own, and the Father will have all the glory which he is deserving of for this beautiful plan laid out. So yeah, we need to think about these opening verses, opening chapters of Genesis, because basically they set the symbols in place, which become the doorway to the typology later in Scripture and unveil to us the marvelous redemptive plan that God has enacted. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.